Through the Bible in five years, and I might take five years to get through the book of Romans because it is a classic book uh, uh, packed with theology and practical application. Uh, I think it's one of the cardinal books that every, every believer should be well grounded in this, in this epistle. And so as a church, we're going we're gonna to explore it together. Romans chapter 1, verses 1 through 7. Paul, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, called to be an apostle, separated to the gospel of God, which he promised before through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh, and declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. Through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. To all who are in Rome, beloved of God, called to be saints. And if you notice, you've got a King James or New King James. The word to be is italicized. We are called saints. That's who we are. We are the called holy ones, sanctified, separated unto God. Father, we're asking the Holy Spirit to open our eyes this morning as we begin a new study, Lord. I pray, Father, that we will grow deep into your word at North Valley Bible Church, Lord, that the power of your word would transform our lives. When we get into those wonderful passages that deal with putting on the new man, reckoning ourselves dead, yielding our members as instruments of righteousness, and God, all the theology that leads up to that point, and God, when we get into those wonderful passages about what can separate us from the love of God, nothing, nothing can separate us. And Father, as we explore those hidden truths, those mysteries that you revealed to Paul about your blinding Israel so that Gentiles might be grafted in, oh God, may we worship you and praise you that you have declared all under sin in order that you might have mercy on all. Father, such wonderful, wonderful application from 12 through 15 to live the Christian life by. So God, I'm asking you, Father, that you will do a work through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Um, you may be seated. So the book of Romans, powerful epistle. And in that salutation that we read this morning, we find out who the author is, what he thought of himself. We find the core of the gospel, what the gospel is about, and we find out who this letter is addressed to. Before we jump right into the text, I just want to 
share with you some things that I've gleaned this week as I've read through the book of Romans and read through the book of Romans and listened to the book of Romans. That there were some things that just started to resound, things that were being repeated, things that were being emphasized. And you're going to hear a, a word that you may have never heard before. It's the word an interlocutor. And an interlocutor is someone that you're having a discussion with, someone that you're dialoguing with, and someone who is posing objections to your arguments. And you're retorting back with a, a sound reason for what you believe. And in the book of Romans, Paul is doing this with an interlocutor that he is sort of preempting. In that word, you remember some times that we would preempt a strike on an enemy. We'd, be, uh, we'd try to counter something before it actually happens. Well, Paul in this letter is preempting what he would call the interlocutor who's objecting to some of his teaching or opposing or questioning what he is saying. And the reason being is that there was a mixed multitude in this church at Rome. The majority of the church was Gentile. And that was causing a lot of consternation upon the Jewish minority. Because they were thinking in their minds, this is our Jewish Messiah. Most of our Jewish brethren are not trusting in this Messiah. They're rejecting him as their Savior. And you're telling us that we're all saved by faith alone and grace alone. So where does the law fit in to our theology? And where does our election fit? The Israelites believed as a nation, and they were a corporate election. And so when we look at election in the Bible, most of the time it's referring to a corporate election, not particular election nor individual election, but Israel saw themselves as an elect people group, as an elect nation. And they identified themselves as the elect of God through a covenant that God had given to Abraham. Abraham had passed that covenant blessing on to Isaac, and Isaac had passed that blessing on to the younger twin brother, Jacob. And so they thought they were God's elect people by virtue of being a child of Abraham. And yet many of them were not following their Jewish Messiah. And so that brought a lot of questions in the minds of these Jewish believers why so many of their brethren were not following Christ. And so Paul is answering those types of questions through this book. So if it's by grace alone, what does the law serve? And by the way, if I am a Jew and Gentiles are getting saved in the masses where just so few of us Jewish people are getting saved, well, what is the advantage then of being a Jew? And so he answers those questions because he can almost perceive in their minds as they're reading this letter that in Romans 1, 2, and 3, that all are under sin, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. And so in chapter 3, he says, well, what advantage is there to being a Jew then? 
And so Paul is sort of preempting that question. So if you have your Bible open, we can just kind of flip through some of these passages and you can see how Paul is dealing with this interlocutor who is maybe bringing some objections to Paul's teaching. So 3.1, it says, well, what advantage there is to being a Jew or what profit is circumcision? And then he answers that for them. There are some definite advantages. If you go to chapter 4, we see another question that he anticipates. What then shall we say that Abraham our father found in according to the flesh? What about Abraham? For if Abraham was justified by works, then he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? So he's answering these questions that they might be bringing to him. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness. If you'll go on to chapter um, chapter 5 and 6. In chapter 5, he's laying out how the law, all it can do is make sin abound. Moreover, the law entered, 520, so that the offense might abound. But where the offense abounded, grace superabounds. And then he preempts a question that the interlocutor might be throwing at him. What shall we say then? Shall we continue to sin so that grace may abound? So he's anticipating that question. And his answer is, meganoitoi in the Greek, may it never be. God forbid, the old King James says, or certainly not. If you go to verse 15, what then shall we sin because we're not under law but under grace? And again, a strong no. May it never be. Certainly not. If you go over to chapter 7 and verse 7, he's talking about how we are dead to the law. The law no longer has a ruling authority in our lives because we are dead to the law. So he anticipates a question that the interlocker might be throwing at him. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? And he answers it again with certainly not on the contrary. And then in verse 13, well, if the, all the law is doing is producing sin, he anticipates another question. Has then what is good become death to me? And again, he answers it with certainly not. So you can see in this letter that Paul, and I think it helps us get the big context of the book, that he's writing to an audience that is primarily Gentile, and he's explaining that it's faith alone, that it's always been faith alone, that God has always intended to call Gentiles to himself and a new elect corporate body called the church. And the Jews are wondering, well, has God then cast away his people? What happens to Israel then? And so he answers that in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And I think many theologians miss the big picture and they take Romans 9 out of the context of the book. They take it out of the context of the first century because the question that is being answered in Romans 9, 10, and 11 isn't about particular election, but the interlocutor is saying, has God's promises to Israel failed? That is the question that they're wanting to know. 
because my Jewish ancestry isn't getting me into heaven. Keeping the law is not getting me into heaven. And now all of these Gentiles are being grafted in to the true olive branch and the natural branches, the Jewish nation, are being lopped off, cut off, so that Israel is no longer that of the circumcision, but a true Jew is a Jew from the heart. And so this is just blowing their minds, and that's the context of this book. So if you go to chapter 11, we can see him sort of summarizing this whole argument with, again, a question that the interlocutor may be throwing at him. I say then, has God cast away his people? And again, it's with a certainly not. May it never be. God has not cast away his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says of Elijah? And he goes on to explain that. So I think if we understand this, it'll help us understand some of these difficult passages in the book of Romans. So Paul starts out by identifying himself to his audience. And he names himself as a doulos, a slave, someone who has absolutely no rights and no privileges. I am sold as a slave, Paul says. I am a slave. And who's the owner? I am a slave of Jesus Christ. And he piles on all these predicate nominatives to explain who he is. But I find it interesting, the very first place he starts is a slave. That's where Paul starts. He doesn't call himself an apostle here. He calls himself a slave. And then he uses the word kletos, or a called apostle. Paul did not volunteer. He was called. Now, basically, the word called has the idea of an invitation to be summonsed. But I believe in this context, it's talking about a call to service. It's an election to a job because he uses another nominative phrase. It's actually a participle, but it describes that called apostle. And that called apostle is someone who is separated unto the gospel of Christ. So here his calling is, it's a calling to service. It's an election to service. Now, the word call sometimes carries a lot of esoteric, spiritual, theological baggage with it, but it doesn't have to. The word called simply means to be invited but in this case, I do believe it does have the sense that Paul was separated from the rest and the mass of humanity to a special ministry. God had set him apart. And he uses that same word, separated from my mother's womb, in the letter to the Galatians. And he's writing the Galatians and he says, Now, you know my former lifestyle in Judaism, how I persecuted the church beyond measure, and I tried to waste it. It's an, a tendential 
idea. I was trying to destroy the church of God. And I was accelerating among all of my contemporaries because I was exceedingly zealous of the traditions of my fathers. But when it pleased God, and here's that same word, it's harazo, it means to mark out the parameters for someone's life. We get our word horizon from this word. When God, who marked out the parameters from my life, from my mother's womb, to reveal the gospel in me. So Paul had a sense of divine calling. And it's interesting that when a Jew was called by God to take the gospel to the Gentile world, God didn't use some kind of internal, irresistible, effectual call. God would use an external event to cause that person's will to surrender to the will of God. We see that in the life of Jonah. Jonah was called to take the gospel, the good news, to the Ninevites. And he ran the opposite direction. God did not use an internal, effectual, irresistible call. In fact, he resisted the call, didn't he? Instead, God used a great fish to get him to go. Peter did not want to go to the Gentiles' house, so what did God do? It wasn't some kind of internal, effectual call. God used a vision to get Peter to submit to what God wanted to do. Paul was exactly the same. He was going to take the gospel to the Gentiles. There was no one in the in the Pharisaical world probably un, more unlikely than the Apostle Paul to take the gospel to Gentiles. So what did God do? God blinded him with an external means. God did the same thing to Moses. Moses tried to run from the call of God, and so God called him at a burning bush. He told him to throw his staff on the ground. So God used these miracles to call people to surrender their wills to follow God. Now, in all these examples that I gave you, their calling was a calling not to the isolation of others, but their calling was to reach the masses. God called Moses to reach not only the children of Israel, but to the nations. There's another thing in the book of Romans that I think we need to understand that will help us to understand the entire New Testament. The word call basically means to invite. And Jesus in Matthew chapter 22 tells a parable and he uses the same word to call. He said, send the servants out and call them to the wedding feast. And one by one, they all began to make excuses. So we can see that this word kaleo, or to call, doesn't necessarily mean some effectual, internal, irresistible calling. It's a simply, it just simply means to invite. And it says, those who were invited, and it's the same Greek word kaleo, they were not worthy. And so they go out into the highways, into the hedges, and they invite people to come. And at the end of that parable, Jesus says, many are called. Many. The masses. The call is a general call to all people. But then he says, few are chosen. Now, to understand that parable, we remember that there was a man who was standing there at the wedding feast and he didn't have the garments on. Now, who were the called? They were all called. They were all invited. No one was excluded. The invitations went everywhere. But who were the chosen ones to stay? 
the ones who submitted to the master, the one who did what was required of them to stay. You've got to be clothed with the wedding garment if you want to be one of the elect ones at my wedding feast. And if you and I want to be one of the elect ones called to the wedding feast, we have got to humble ourselves and put on the wedding garment, the righteousness of Jesus Christ. That's who he's referring to in that parable. So we see here in this passage that Paul calls himself separated unto, this is the purpose of his life, unto the gospel of God. Now he's going to lay on some other phrases to explain the gospel for us. He says, this gospel, which was before preached, and then he says the means that God before preached it. Well, how did God do that? Well, he tells us he did it through his prophets. You remember when Jesus was dialoguing in John chapter 5, and they were looking for all the different signs that Jesus would prove his Messiahship. And in John chapter 5 and verse 39, Jesus says this. He says, you search the scriptures. It's a present progressive. You Pharisees are doing this all the time. You are searching the scriptures. Or it could be an imperative, the same form. Search the scriptures. Keep doing it. For in them you think you have eternal life. But then he says this. He says, and they, the scriptures, are which testify of me. On the road to Emmaus, two men walking with Jesus. And he looks at them. He says, why are you so gloomy today? What has happened? And the two men look at Jesus kind of dumbfounded and said, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem? Don't you know what has happened? And Jesus says, what? And they said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, their eyes were closed and they didn't recognize him. We thought he was the Messiah. We were waiting for him. He was the hope of of all of our dreams. And starting at Moses and all the prophets, he expounded in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. This gospel that you and I have embraced and trust and believe in, it was before preached, before promised, by the prophets and where in the holy scriptures this is where we find the good news we can start at the book of genesis that it was the seed of the woman that was the first promise proto-evangelia the first gospel ever preached was to eve your seed the seed of the woman a miraculous virgin birth is going to come and crush our enemy It was preached to Abraham in your seed, singular. And Paul picks up on that singular idea in the book of Galatians, not plural, but through one seed, and that seed was Jesus. I will bless all people, all nations. And then at the end of Genesis, when Jacob is blessing his children, he looks at Judah and he says, Judah, out of you will come a lawgiver. And the scepter will never depart from the law or from the tribe of Judah. That's just, that's just one book. That's just one book. The book of Genesis. Talking how God in the Holy Scripture, this gospel that Paul has been separated unto, it has been before preached through the prophets in the Holy Scripture. Now, what is the gospel all about? Well, he uses a 
preposition here, concerning. This is what the gospel is about. Jesus was fully man and he was fully God. And he had all the right credentials. He was born or having come according to the flesh by the seed of King David. This was their Messiah. He was fully man, but he was also fully God. And he was declared the Son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness. And how? How did God verify? How did he vindicate all of Jesus' claims? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Without that, it all would have been falsified. But this gospel, it's all about Jesus Christ. That is the good news. He fits all the credentials. He is both son of man and son of God through the resurrection from the dead. Now Paul goes on to talk about this gospel, Jesus Christ being raised from the dead, through whom, through Jesus, we received grace and apostleship for for the obedience of faith. So I I want to just stop at verse 5 and and turn over to 1 Timothy. Paul understood grace. He understood that he had received grace. He remembered what his life was like. So turn to 1 Timothy and we'll see how Paul writes that he is a pattern of God's grace and long-suffering for anyone who's going to believe in Jesus. 1 Timothy 1.12 And I thank Christ Jesus our Lord. And what did Christ do? Christ enabled me. He empowered me because he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry. Although I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an insolent man, but I obtained mercy because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And here's the word grace. This is what Paul had received. And the grace of our Lord was exceedingly abundant with faith and love which are in Christ Jesus. And this is a faithful saying. It's worthy of all acceptance that Christ came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. However, for this reason I obtain mercy that in me first Jesus Christ might show all long suffering as a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life. So Paul had received grace through Christ for this ministry that God had given him. So this ministry, he received grace and apostleship unto obedience. And it's a genitive term. It's hard to translate. But the idea is when you have genuine faith, It is something's going to spring out of that, and that is obedience. And the word for obedience is to submit as you hear. Acoustic is the word to hear. Hupo is the word to put under. And so he uses this word, hupo akuo, to obey, to submit. Genuine faith. That's what genuine faith is. It produces this submission. 
and I've received this, and the purpose is so that people will have faith in Christ and submit their lives under his authority. That's the gospel. It's all about Christ. He is the seed of David. He's declared the Son of God with power, according to the spirit of holiness. And then uh, he, Paul says that he received this grace and apostleship. And notice the audience that he's to take it to. It's among all ethnic groups. Ethne is the Greek word for nations here. It's all Gentiles. It's, and one of the themes that you'll see, that we're going to discover in the book of Romans as well is that our God is not a, a respecter of persons. The word whosoever comes up again and again and again in the book of Romans. So this gospel, it is for all nations on behalf of the name of Christ, in whom you, you are the called. Now the word called here simply means to be invited. That's who you and I are. We have gotten the wedding invitation and you and I have responded positively to God's invitation. And he says to them, he says, in whom you are the called of Christ Jesus. Now that also tells us something else. It tells us that our God took the initiative. That God reached down to us. Now what is the means by which God calls you and I? What is the means that God invites you and I? He has given us an inspired gospel call. It is the power of God unto salvation. That is the means that God has given us this invitation. And it wasn't that God just sent the gospel. He sent His Son into the world to invite and to seek and to save that which is lost, Luke 19.10. And then He has sent the Holy Spirit to convince us and to convict us of sin and righteousness and judgment. So we are called. It is God who takes the initiative. It is God who sent His Son to you and I. It is God who has sent us this inspired gospel that Jesus Christ died in our place. It is the Holy Spirit that makes it alive and true in our minds. So we are the call. That's who He, he, he describes the Romans as. And we are as well. You are the call of Jesus Christ. To all those who are in Rome, beloved and then Kletois Hagios, we are called saints. Now, what does the word saints imply about you and I? It doesn't mean that you and I have to perform some kind of miracle and we have to wait for uh, an official decree to make us a saint. We are saints because of our position in Jesus Christ. The word means to be set apart. We are holy ones. We are called. God has invited us through the gospel, through sending his son, sending the Holy Spirit to bring out our sin to us and to make it real in our lives. And then God separates us. I think so many Christians miss this. We live our lives so much on an earthly plane instead of walking on a heavenly plane. We don't think of ourselves as saints. We don't think of ourselves as sanctified. We don't think of ourselves as set apart. But that is diminishing the work 
and the power of the gospel. The gospel does not save us to keep us in our sin. The gospel saves us to sanctify us, to set us apart from sin, to be unique, to be different, to be a light on a hill, to be salt on the earth. And that's what he calls the Roman Christians, and that's who you and I are. We are called. God has made the gracious invitation to you and I when we were yet sinners. And then he sanctifies us. He sets us apart. The called saints. Now, I love Paul's salutations, and he does this in almost every one of his letters. What does he then commend them to? Grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we need for living, isn't it? We need grace and we need peace. And it's not found anywhere else than Jesus Christ. And that is what Paul's life was all about. So this morning, as we're finishing up just this short salutation, I've got just a couple of applications for us. One, we have been bought with a price, right? We're not our own. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we need to reorientate our thinking. God is not a genie in heaven whereby we rub the lamp and then get three wishes. Our God is a sovereign king who is righteous and holy and one loves one that loves you and I with an infinite love. And we are slaves, not to a despot, but we are slaves to a loving master who will only do what is right and what is good and that will transform our lives. And we need to submit ourselves and say, God, I am a slave. I re-identify myself. I am no longer Saul of Tarsus. I am Paul, a slave of Jesus Christ. Our lives need to be separated. They need to be marked out as unique and distinct. We need to embrace the gospel. We need to know the gospel. We need to understand that the good news is all about Jesus. It's concerning his son, Jesus Christ. Our king, our God, our savior was fully man. He was fully God. We need to understand the power of the resurrection. It is the power of the resurrection that transforms our lives. In chapter 6, Paul's going to tell us that we were buried with Christ. And just as Christ was raised by the power of God, you and I have been raised by the power of God to walk in the newness of life. We've received grace. That's what we have received. We didn't receive what we deserved. If God marked iniquities, Psalm 103 and verse 3. No, it's not 103. That's a different psalm. I can't remember, but it's verse 3 of some, one of the psalms. If God would mark iniquity, who could stand? 
but there is forgiveness with thee that thou mayest be feared. As the heavens are fire above the earth, so great is his mercy toward those who fear him. His thoughts are not our thoughts. His ways are not our ways. You know the passage that we quote, Isaiah 55? The context is turn to me and repent and I will graciously pardon because my thoughts are not your thoughts. My ways are not your ways. God is a God of forgiveness. He is a God of love. He's a God of restoration. He's a God who takes ashes and God turns them into something beautiful. Is a God who takes blind eyes and creates sight. Is a God who takes crippled men and lets them walk again. This is our God. We have received grace. And lastly, we need to live separated lives because we're holy ones. And we've been invited to his dinner. So Father God, today, I thank you for this salutation that Paul wrote. I thank you, God, for the rich theology that's in it. And when the Jewish person, when he read that, it had to resonate with him because the Old Testament said, I will not leave the Holy One in the grave, neither will his body see corruption. Today have I begotten you I have declared you the Son of God, it says in the second psalm. And Paul is referring to that when he says, declare to be the Son of God with power by the Spirit of holiness through the resurrection of the dead. And a Jewish person had to be looking for someone from the seed of David, someone from the line of Judah, someone who would take the government and put it on his shoulders, whose name would be called the Wonderful Counselor the mighty God, the Prince of Peace, the everlasting Father. So Father, God, thank you. Thank you that the good news is all about a person who was our substitute, who can offer us freely this grace. Today, God, I pray that God, that you will set us apart. Set us apart for your purposes, God. That your power would be manifested in our lives, God. That we wouldn't live a life without direction spiritually, a a life without purpose spiritually, but God, that we would see ourselves separated unto you for your callings and for your ministry. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand together and sing one last hymn. Great is thy faithfulness. Another theme in the book of Romans, that the election and the calling of God, they are irrevocable. Romans chapter 11, verse 25 and 26. God's promises, God's faithfulness, he doesn't revoke them. When God made a covenant with Abraham, it was a covenant made unilaterally by himself.